It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Hey, everybody. Welcome into the Pipeline Podcast. Tim McMaster here along with MLB Pipelines. Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo. Guys, if there's such a thing as a slow season as far as pipeline goes, this may be it, but still plenty to talk about with you guys. The perfect game, All-American Classic, was Sunday. We're going to talk about what scouts had to say about some of the big performers there. We're also going to talk about Ronald Acuna, the tear he is on right now, helping to lead this Braves team into contention here a little bit ahead of schedule. But first, before we get to that, some history may be brewing at the minor league level. Ted Williams is famously the last big leaguer to hit 400. He hit 406 back in 1941. He was six for eight in that doubleheader on the final day of the season. Everybody knows about that 77 years ago. The minor league drought with an asterisk that I'll get into a little bit. Um, Aaron Pointer hit 401 in 1961 in the Cubs organization. That was 57 years ago. He was the last one to do it for a full season in the minors. Arubial Durazo did it in 1999 before getting called up to the big leagues. But guys, right now in 2018, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is making a run at the big number 400. He was one for five on Tuesday. That actually dropped him below the mark. 397, 452 is the uh, average and on-base percentage. He's been unbelievable. Jim, I'll start with you because... You love Vlad maybe more than anyone. Can he hit 400, especially considering now that he's up at AAA? Yeah, I mean, he he can. I mean, it's tough because, like you pointed out, I mean, you go one for five, like that like dings your batting average, and he's, he's currently exactly one hit behind. But, I mean, you know, I guess we've got, I'm trying to do the math in my head, about 20 games left in the minor league season. I mean, he hit 402 over a 61 game stretch in Double A, so I, I think he he certainly can. It'll be interesting, you know the the highest batting average this century in the minor leagues full season level is 389 by Jose Altuve. So if he doesn't get 400, that's another mark to shoot for as well. But yeah, I mean he's I mean the guy is as good a hitter as we've seen. He controls the strike zone. Uh, you know he had the layoff because of his is the patellar tendon injury in his left knee uh, that they cost him about five weeks and he came back and he's been on fire ever since. So uh, yeah, I think it's doable. It's not easy. You're hitting 400 at any level is hard, but uh, if anybody can do it, I think it's Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Yeah, he certainly is. And we know pretty much, I think at this point, Jonathan, it's pretty clear that he's going to play out this season at the minor league level. The Blue Jays not wanting to start that clock. Yeah, I, I would think so. And, and, and even if they decide to, they can let him f- finish things off in, in Buffalo uh, and, and, and see where he ends up uh, during you know, what seems to be at least somewhat of a historic minor league season. And, you know, <laughs> looking at his minor league numbers, because he's only played 13 games there. But it's tough when you're hitting 372 and it brings your average down. But, uh, you know, he was re- on fire. Uh, and then a one for nine over his last two games uh, dropped him from a 441 in AAA down to 
down to 372. So uh, all in, you know, he could just as easily get back to the two or three hits a game that he was compiling since he, since he's come back uh, for the most part. And and that could get him back over 400 without, uh, without any real difficulty. So he'll be down there at the minor league level, and and he's been so good this season. And you know Blue Jays fans, Jim, are probably chomping at the bit to see him up at the big league level, but they got to be patient too, right? Because you, I mean, there's two sides of this. He's clearly ready to play in the big leagues, but the Blue Jays are going nowhere this season. So you get the plan here from the front office. Yeah, I mean, it, it's we we have this discussion a lot. And there are some rules that benefit players and there are some rules that benefit teams and the way the rules are structured right now, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. I mean, if I'm a blue Jays fan, would I love to see him in September and give me something to watch? I would, but the blue Jays are much better off waiting at least a couple weeks into next season to the point where you, you know, from a service time issue, you need six full seasons. There's no super two or super six or anything free agency. You need six full seasons of major league service. And if they wait a couple weeks, because you actually don't need to be up every day of the year to get a full year's of service time, but we're not going to go down that road. But if they just wait a couple weeks next year, they can control Guerrero for essentially seven full major league seasons as opposed to six. So yes, I am with you. I mean, I, I think you could promote him to the big leagues at mid season and he would have, you know, I won't even say held his own. I think he, he would have more than held his own because the guy's just a hitting savant, but it makes no sense from the Blue Jays' standpoint, long-term planning to call him up this September. I, I don't think there's any chance we see him in September. Yeah, I agree. As, as much fun as it would be to see him in, in Toronto, I, I think you're right, uh, guys. I don't think we're going to see him. But, uh, and I think we've talked about this before, especially because of the time that he missed, uh, maybe we'll get to see him in the Arizona Fall League. And it's not like he has things to prove, but maybe just to make up for some of those at-bats uh, it would be very exciting if uh, the Blue Jays decide to send him to the AFL to make up for some of those lost at-bats because of that knee injury. Yeah, we could get spoiled, Jonathan, in the AFL because we might – I mean, I, I agree with you. I think there's a very good chance we get Vlad Rigger Jr., who's the best prospect in baseball. I think there's also a very good chance we get Forrest Whitley in Arizona Fall League, who's our, our top-rated pitching prospect. And he's just getting ready – you know, he missed some time with an oblique injury. He had a drug suspension at the beginning of the year. He's only thrown 23 innings this year, and he hasn't had an arm injury. So I think there's a very good chance we get Guerrero and Whitley. So uh, uh, good silver lining with both those guys. All right. While Vlad Guerrero Jr. will not be at the big league level down the stretch, there are prospects who will be and who could help their team get to the postseason. Uh, Jim, you have a story up on Pipeline about this right now. So I want to get through some of these guys. Um, let's start at the, the top of your list, and that is Justice Sheffield, left-handed pitcher, obviously, with the Yankees. Their top prospect right now, number 27 on the top 100. Um, the Yankees went out, and they made some moves for starting pitching, and Jay Happ has been great for them. There's no question about that. But they honestly could still use some more help in that department. CC Sabathia right now going on the disabled list. Luis Severino has has shown some kinks in the armor for sure lately. What would Justice Sheffield bring to the Yankees, Jim? Well, yeah, and they've gotten like some surprisingly effective pitching out of Lancelin too. But Sonny Gray's been a mess. I, I, you know, I think what he brings to him is is there's no doubt the Yankees are going to get to the playoffs. But if they're going to go on an extended playoff run, 
And they're probably going to have to get through both the Red Sox and the Astros to get to the World Series. It's it, you know the, the pitching in the postseason is so much different than the regular season. You can get by and you can outslug some teams, and you're playing lesser teams. You need quality starting pitching to go deep in the playoffs. And I think Sheffield has the potential to to give them as much quality as probably anybody in that rotation behind Luis Severino. And as you noted, Severino hasn't been really effective since the All-Star break. But, you know, Sheffield's a guy who's got three pitches that can be plus pitches at, at times on, on a fairly regular basis, maybe not 100% consistent yet. He, he's pitched very well in Triple A at age 22. He, he throws a, a decent amount of strikes. So I, I would get him up. You know, they, I mean, look, they're going to make the playoffs no matter what. I don't see how they're not going to win one of the wild card spots, but that's not the, the, the difference between making the playoffs and going to world series and winning world series. Those are two different things. So that's where I think Sheffield can make the impact is, is not necessarily going to be, he's not gonna make the difference in them getting to October, but he can make a difference for them in October. I like his upside more than I like anybody else in that rotation outside of Severino. Uh, we've heard so much, Jonathan, about Juan Soto and what he's done with the Washington Nationals as they're kind of clinging to postseason life here. Uh, the truth is that if Victor Robles had been healthy all season, he probably would have gotten the call instead of Soto when they needed the outfielder earlier in the season. He's still the team's number one prospect, number five in the top 100. He's healthy again, but it is interesting because the Nats don't necessarily need an outfielder right now. That said, do you think he will come up and – maybe give this team a boost well there's no question he'll come up and if uh you know if the very least he will provide defense and pinch running uh both of which he would, would do extremely well he's he's like the prospect version of wally pip um you know he, he got leapfrogged by soto and soto has been so ridiculously good uh that there is not a clear path right now uh but yeah i Imagine that Robles gets called up. Uh, you know, one good thing that he provides is, is the ability to then double switch more, be a, a little more aggressive and pinch hitting if you want to uh, play matchups because you know you have this extra outfielder who you can plug in anywhere and he's going to, at the very least, give you plus defense. Still has tremendous all around tools, uh, you know, as good as any one who's still considered a, a prospect. Uh, it's just that uh, that elbow injury forced him out for such a long period of time. He, he, he's almost been forgotten, but he's still so incredibly young and has so much upside. Uh, you know, you may not feel his full impact on the Nationals until next year, uh, but seeing him and Soto in the same outfield together in 2019 would be very exciting, and I think we'll probably see it at times down the stretch here. Yeah, that's an interesting point when you look ahead to the future because when you look at 2019, Jim, for this Nationals team is – Pretty good chance that Bryce Harper is not in that outfield, but to have Soto and Robles and then I guess Eaton will be out there as well. Yes, you're certainly going to miss Bryce Harper if he goes away elsewhere on a free agent contract, but at least you have the right prospects as far as filling that gap. Yeah, that's a good point, Tim. I mean, even if they lose Harper, I don't think anybody's going to be crying about the Nationals outfield when they have Soto and Robles who are – you know, going to be there for years. You know, Adam Eaton's a very productive player when he's healthy. Michael Taylor shows flashes of, of ability. I mean, he's a very good defender and runner. The, the bat's a little inconsistent. But, uh, you know, I don't think the plan necessarily is to lose Bryce Harper. But if they do, I don't feel like the outfield will be the weak link for the Nationals at all going forward. 
All right, one more guy on the list by Jim um, that I wanted to talk about. And Jonathan, I'll go to you for this one. The Oakland Athletics have obviously surprised everybody. Not only are they a wildcard contender now, but just a game back of the Astros in the West as we record the podcast. And Jesus Luzardo, the 20-year-old lefty, their number one prospect, number 12 in the top 100 right now. I mean, this guy could really factor in for a team that surprised everybody, and he's come so far this season through the minors. All of this part of the conversation is is amazing to me. You know, if you told me that we'd be talking about the A's in the playoffs and then talking about Jesus Lozardo impacting the playoffs, I don't I don't think that I would have believed any of that. I mean, he's still not that far removed from Tommy John surgery. Uh, he threw 43 innings last year. He made his full season debut this this year. He hadn't pitched in full season ball. And now he's in AAA. Uh, he misses a ton of bats. He's got good command. He's got great stuff. We saw his mound presence uh, when he started the Futures game. Uh, there is no question in my mind that he's ready to get big league hitters out in some kind of role, whether it's to step into help out the rotation. If you want to shorten him up and have him come out of the bullpen, you know, and that's a short-term thing. In no way, shape, or form am I saying Jesus Lazardo is anything but a frontline starting pitching prospect. Uh, I, I think the A's have uh, uh, part in the pun and ace in the hole here, you know, in terms of what he could bring to the table if and when he gets a, a call up uh, late this year, he, he could really, as much as anybody on the list have uh, a huge impact uh, on the playoff race. Jim, how about from an innings limit? I mean, is he gonna? Are they gonna have to be careful with him? Would he be more of a bullpen weapon, or can he come in and and make some starts down the stretch? Um, you know, it's one of those things they don't necessarily tell you how many innings are gonna go with the guy. Um, you know, but that, that's a fair point. He only threw forty three innings this year. Um, you know, it, it's just such a tough call. I mean, I think when you've got a chance to win, I'm not saying go out and throw him one hundred and twenty pitches. But, you know, they've used, I think at last count, 13 different starting pitchers this year. Um, they've got, you know, Brett Anderson bouncing around the back of their rotation. You know, he hasn't been particularly effective and he doesn't have the longest track record of staying healthy. I, I would seriously consider bringing him up and, and you just have to monitor him carefully. But, uh, but you're right. I mean, my guess is he's got to be probably getting pretty close to an innings limit. Um, and maybe it's not something they'd want to extend into October. All right, so those are guys who could come up and, and affect the race down the stretch. One guy who has been affecting it for most of the season that we should talk about here on this podcast is Ronald Acuna, guys. And so good all year, but, I mean, ridiculous the last five games as we record this. He's homered in five straight games, uh, six homers overall in that stretch after he hit two on Tuesday night. Uh a lot of those leading off the games and kind of setting the tones as good as Soto's been, Jonathan. I mean, what do you make of this nationally rookie of the year race when it's Soto and Acuna seemingly trading haymakers down the stretch? Yeah, seriously. It's like, all right, Soto, oh boy, it looks like he's starting to run away with it. And then Acuna goes off eight homers in, in eight games. If you go back to August, the eighth, uh, like to that two homer, you know, homering the lead off both ends of a double header, um, it, it has been as impressive a stretch as you'll see from anybody, let alone a guy his age and his experience level. Uh, the fact that it's impacting a playoff race uh, and as part of this Braves uh, ahead of schedule renaissance, 
it, it, it makes it all the more impressive. You know, it, it would be really cool to see him doing this if the Braves were out of the race, but he's helping them stay atop the NL East and get ready for the postseason while, while, while doing this. And, uh, you know, he was a guy who looked like he belonged when we saw him, you know, in the fall league in the past. There's a reason why he was our top prospect. Um, so it's, uh, you know, when a guy has that, you know, those high, that high level of expectations and then he exceeds them, uh, it's, it's very impressive. And that, and that's what Acuna is doing right now. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the Fall League, Jonathan. He just made the game look so easy in the Fall League, and he's done that after he's gotten acclimated to the big leagues and he had a little bit of an injury uh, he dealt with too. But I think he's been leading off for them, and I think I saw the stat. He's got 12 homers in 24 games as a leadoff hitter. Um, He, you know, I thought the one aspect of his game that that needs some work, and it probably still does, would be, you know, kind of – you know, controlling the strike zone and managing the strike zone and making consistent contact, but that hasn't stopped him from being productive, even though he's striking out, you know, at about a 30% clip and four times as much as he walks. But I mean, he's just ridiculously talented. I mean, he's the the youngest player on Monday when he homered in both games of the doubleheader, led off both games to go to four straight. He eclipsed uh, Miguel Cabrera as the youngest player ever to homer in four straight games. And then he goes and hits two more homers last night. Um, You know, and the scary thing is he's only 20. So, I mean, I I think he is going to continue to get better. And Tim, your comment about the rookie of the year race, I I think it's neck and neck right now. Uh, You know, Soto had the lead, um, but I think Acuna is making a run at him and it's going to be fun watching these guys down the stretch and uh, you know, it's conceivable. They both could make the playoffs, you know, cause the national league races are so tight. We'll see how that shakes out. And you know, maybe we'll get to see these guys play into October as well. Yeah. One of the coolest things about that race, I think is that they're division rivals as well with the Braves and nationals, although the nationals uh, on the outside looking in right now, but trying to pick up some ground. All right, let's switch down to the 2019 draft now and check in again on that summer showcase circuit. The perfect game. All American classic was on Sunday night. The West winning for the third straight year. They took it 4-2. to two And another one of these games where the pitching really dominated. Um, only two hits for the East squad. But the MVP still went to one of the batters. Jonathan, you checked in with a lot of scouts and their thoughts on the game. I want to start with Corbin Carroll. He's not a guy that we've talked about a ton. He was hit tournament of stars. He's, he's a guy that plays up the middle, obviously. can play a real good center field. He's the MVP. He tripled off Daniel Espino in the first inning. He also draw a couple of, drew a couple of walks. What are scouts saying about Carroll right now as far as the draft goes? Well, I think the biggest thing is that they're talking about him. Uh, you know, this is not a guy who, you know, he was a decent prospect. He's not the biggest guy in the world. Uh, 5'11", 165 pounds, and, and that might be kind. Uh, but what really stood out from the weekend is that he's got more power uh, than people thought. He ended up in the final four of the home run derby, uh, probably the most unlikely guy to, to get there. I uh, tripled off of Espino to left center, stole the base. You know, everyone knew about the speed, but there, there's more present strength than a lot of people thought. Um, you know, someone compared him to Alec Thomas uh, from this last year's draft, uh, but maybe with a little more pop. Uh, you know, so he's surprised a lot of people. And I think he's now further up on people's follow lists for the spring. Now, how he follows it up, uh, we'll have to wait and see. He lives in, in Washington. So people will have to wait uh, until the weather gets a little bit better there. But he, as much as anybody over the sort of last half of the summer and then the perfect game classic in particular, put his name on the map while the rest of it was, you know, a lot of guys, you know, 
living up to expectations, which is not nothing. But Carroll is the guy who stands out for uh, being a guy who wasn't talked about, who is now uh, being talked about a, a lot more. It's interesting that, that that's the case with him because when I saw the Under Armour game, Jonathan, I mean, there were a lot of the big names – you know, stood out at the Under Armour game. A lot of the same names that stood out, you know, at the perfect game, all-star game, all-America game. But Corbin Carroll was probably the, the least high-profile guy who, who really stood out here at Wrigley Field, too. I mean, I, I think he's at least a 60 runner. I mean, some guys will give you more than that. He showed a good discipline approach. He showed bat speed. He, he pulled a 93-mile-an-hour fastball for a hit. He stole a base. He drew a walk. He had another single. I mean, he was impressive uh, here in Wrigley Field, too. So it just sounds like he's he's having quite the summer. On the pitching side of things, guys, Matt Allen struck out the side in one inning of work, Jonathan. Um, Some of the the guys that you expect to do well on the mound did as well. But Allen, maybe the most dominant performance. What do scouts think of of what he did? What does that do for him? I like the the comp that someone made to Michael Fulmer in high school. uh, He's he's big and strong, um, but with a good delivery. Uh, So sometimes you see a guy who's – not maxed out physically, but not that sort of prototypical, projectable high school right-hander. Uh, but, you know, when you're mid-90s with a good breaking ball and strong and, and with a smooth delivery that he repeats, then that's that's really good. So, he, yeah, he is, he is among that group of arms that is probably in the, you know, sort of, we'll, we'll say, first-round uh, conversation. Uh, there this group of arms is not quite as good as last year seemed to be at this time. Now, some of those guys didn't end up separating themselves once we got to the draft. Uh, but a lot of these guys, uh, Matthew Allen, you mentioned Espino, even though he gave up a run in that triple to Kobe Carroll was 98, 99, as he's been pretty much all summer. Uh, so there was some of that. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the other guys kind of did what was expected in a game, as you pointed out, Tim was very pitching heavy. Yeah, as far as the bats go, and I want to touch on, on one more hitter, and Jim, uh, Riley Green's a guy who had a real good early spring and summer uh, tournament stars. He was really good. And then maybe, I don't want to say it tailed off a little bit, but he was still good in BP, but um, not as great as far as games go. But he was good again in this game and, and showed things off. And it seems like he's hasn't affected his stock at all. He came into the summer sky high, and it seems like it's still there. Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you got a consensus of scouts, they'd probably tell you that he was the the best pure hitter in the high school class. I mean, he was another guy who had a great Under Armour game. He had a great at bat against Brent Malone, and then he uh, hit a hanging slider off the right field scoreboard. But uh, no, I mean, I, it's 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 you know these events, it's it's hard. I mean, these guys are under the microscope so much. I, you know, I, I still think you know if the draft is uh, if the draft were today, I, I think Bobby Witt Jr would be the number one high school position player taken. And then I think you're probably talking about Riley Green or C.J. Abrams as the number two guy. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, you know, uh, and I'll put together a top high school list. Um, Abrams was just okay at East Coast Pro, but that, that's fine. That You know, there's so many looks in these guys, and the tools are still the tools. Someone even pointed that out about Bobby Witt Jr. went 0 for 2 in the perfect game classic, but his tools are so good and are so much better as an all-around package than anyone else that even when he goes 0 for 2, he still looks like the best player on the field. 
All right, one more thing I want to touch on with you guys is we need to revisit the Chris Archer trade briefly because it's finally complete. The player to be named later is no longer a player to be named later. That player is named Shane Baz as he goes over to the Tampa Bay Rays. Um, so now when you look at it, in, in essence, the Rays get three top 100 guys, two formerly top 100 guys who had graduated the big leagues, and now Shane Baz. Um Jonathan, I always start with you with Pittsburgh-related questions, so I'll do that again. Chris Archer As well went should. to the Pirates, so with Baz in the deal, how do you reevaluate that trade? Yeah, you know, I don't know that it changes things that much. Uh, we knew that the third guy was going to be a a, a good prospect, uh, and to me that read top 10 in the Pirates system. Uh, whether it was a top 100 guy or not, we needed to find out. It turned out it was. Boz is still really far away. He was you know, just pitching in the Appalachian League, uh, which was a little surprising to me, uh, to be honest. Uh, I thought he was a guy who uh, would have uh, been a candidate to go to full season ball, sort of like Jameson Tyon did in his first full year, just because of his stuff and feel for pitching. Uh, but th- that doesn't detract from how good he might be when all is said and done. But it just might mean he's a, f- a little bit further away. And uh, one of the things that I marvel at here in Pittsburgh is people are, oh, they gave up way too much. And yes, uh, they overpaid. Uh, I, and I, I agree they overpaid. But it's a lot of the same people who have been complaining that uh, that the Pirates never make a trade, a big trade to help the big league club out, uh, are now complaining once they they did, and you can't have it both ways. Now, maybe you want to say they overpaid a little bit, but they went all in, and and they got a guy who they could control for the next three full seasons after this one, should they choose to, at a very moderate rate. Uh, you know, as I wrote in my analysis, you know, in some ways you may not be able to evaluate this for quite some time because not only could Archer help them win, but there's still plenty of time that if he's pitching well and they're not in contention, say next year, they could flip him and get some good players in return should they decide to go that route. I'm not saying that's what they're going to do. Uh, but uh, So I think while I think it was an overpay uh, for who Chris Archer is currently, I don't, I don't necessarily think it's the stuff that should make people you know, hysterical, as some people here in Pittsburgh uh, have become because of, of Shane Baz's inclusion in the deal. You know, I wouldn't get hysterical about it, but I think this has the potential to blow up in the Pirates' face somewhat. Um, I think it is curious that after those years of not making moves when they had definite playoff teams that they made this move now. And they, you know, we'll see. I mean, they're the wild card race is so hard to keep track of in the National League. I think they're like four. I think there's five teams ahead of him for the two spots. But I guess I look at the trade. And look, prospects aren't sure things, and we know that. And Austin Meadows and Tyler Glass now, even though they don't count as prospects anymore because they aren't rookie eligible, so they aren't on our list anymore, they're not established big leaguers by any means. But if, if any of the three players in this trade that the Rays got, whether it's Boz or whether it's Meadows or whether it's Glass now, hits his ceiling, then I think the Rays win the trade. And if two of these guys come close to being what they can be, then it's going to be a landslide winner of a trade for the Pirates. Now, I mean, for, for the Rays. Now, it's we can look back at this, and and maybe, you know, Glassell never figures out control, and, and he winds up just being a reliever, and, you know, maybe he's not a late-inning force, and, you know, maybe Austin Meadows continues to have injury problems, although he's hit pretty well when he's been healthy. But, uh, you know, I look at this as, I mean, you gave up 
Uh, you know, Meadows is a potential, you know, everyday outfielder, you know, who can make some impact. Glasnow could be an impact starter or impact reliever if, if he gets a little bit more command. Um, and Shane Boz, I mean, I'm not saying he was the best pitcher in the 2017 draft, but he had the potential to be the best pitcher in the 2017 draft. He had a doesn't throw as hard as Hunter Green, who, who you know, is hurt now. But Boz had a much more well-rounded repertoire, better breaking stuff. So, so we'll see. I, I was a little surprised that, you know, the player – was as good as Shane Boz. I, I would have thought if it, from the Pirates end, you know, we hear significant prospect and sometimes it's not even a significant prospect. Like Jonathan, I kind of assumed it might be somebody in the top 10 and I thought it might be one of their, you know, upper level, you know, middle infielders who are kind of bad over power and maybe second base over shortstop, you know, guys like Cole Tucker or Kevin Newman or Kevin Kramer. I didn't think it was going to be Shane Boz. I, I, that, I was surprised it was a player that good as a third player in the deal. Yeah, and I read uh, there was a point. Someone pointed out that Glasnow actually technically a higher WAR than Chris Archer at this point. Although that you know only so much can be said for that this year. Archer not having a great year, uh, but we'll see how that trade plays out for sure in the next few years, and if the Pirates can uh, become real contenders and make Chris Archer stay in Pittsburgh valuable. It'll certainly be something to keep an eye on. All right, that is going to do it for this edition of the Pipeline Podcast. For Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis, I'm Tim McMaster. Thanks for tuning in. Join us again next time.